This is the St. Longinus's Baptism Podcast Channel. This will be episode 28, a Lenten reflection. But first, a prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, amen. All that I am and all that I have and all that I do shall be consecrated to your service and your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Immaculate Heart of Mary, please pray for us. Sacred Heart of Jesus, please pray for us. Amen. So, I'm going to put the five Gospels that have to do with Jesus' passion in the show notes. Those of you who are familiar will realize that these are the five meditations on the rosary for the sorrowful mysteries. My only comment on this is um, we should reflect, you know, those of us who are Catholic, we should reflect on these five gospel readings every day during Lent, not just, you know, on Tuesday and Friday when the rosary does it. Having said that, I'm going to start with the first gospel reading, which is St. Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 46. Then Jesus came with them into a country place, which is called Gethsemane, And he said to his disciples, sit here till I go yonder and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that would be uh, John and James, he began to grow sorrowful and be sad. And he said to them, my soul is sorrowful even unto death. Stay you here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell upon his face, praying and saying, My father, if it be possible, let this chalice pass from me. Nonetheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he cometh to his disciples, and finding them asleep, he saith to Peter, What, could you not watch one hour with me? Watch ye and pray that that ye... Enter not into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time he went praying, saying, My father, if this chalice may not pass away, but I must drink it, thy will be done. And he cometh again, and finding them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And leaving them, he went again and prayed a third time, saying the selfsame word. Then coming, then he cometh to his disciples and saith to them, Sleep now, take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Behold, he that is at hand will, will betray me. So the reflection that I have for this particular uh, gospel reading 
is that if you're trying to be pious and devout, you'll have periods where things are going well and then periods where um, things don't go so well. And when the things don't go so well, you're going to be tempted very much. But if you are tempted and heaven forbid, if you should, you know, give in to that temptation, my advice is don't despair, but with humility and patience, wait for God to give you the comfort. And he will. If you're faithful to him, he'll be faithful to you. And just always remember, too, let's just say you have more trials and tribulations than you do comforts. Remember, if you persevere to the end and are able to make it into heaven, everything else is going to seem like a bad dream to you. Now, Your enemy, and when I say your enemy, I'm saying your spiritual enemy, the devil, and and your impure flesh. Um, and until you you gain sanctity and learn how to tame your flesh, these these two forces are going to hammer you. They're going they're going to hammer you because. The devil on his part doesn't want you to get to heaven. And your flesh, for its part, your impure flesh, it just wants you to go back the way things were, you know, to the drinking, the crowsing, whatever whatever you were doing that was not of God. It wants to go back to that because, you know, our our fallen nature, you know, it hates it hates change, you know, especially holy change. So they're never going to rest. And by the way, part of the whole idea behind mortifications and penances is so that you can help tame your impure flesh so that it will not attack you so hard. And once you get to that point, yeah, then yeah, the devil's really going to go at you. But until you get your flesh tamed, you don't need the devil to tempt you. Your flesh is going to do that. Now, another uh, idea, or not idea, but um, another meditation to be had for this particular scripture is it gives an account of the Lord's Supper or what people call the Last Supper. Um, I don't really like that description because it basically, um, people get it confused with uh, Protestant communion and Vatican II communion, which are basically suppers. Um, The sacrifice of the Mass is the proper... um, is the proper uh, way to look at it. Um, because in this, in, in the passage where it's called the Lord's Supper, he's basically saying 
this is my this is my body when he takes the bread and this is my blood when he takes the chalice so basically he's instituting the holy sacrifice of mass so don't get it twisted protestants and vatican II members it's a sacrifice it's not a supper now when jesus goes to gethsemane and he goes down to pray he he's still god he's still god he has a human nature but he's still god so he foresees what's going to happen to him he foresees it and part of the reason that he you know his human nature is is saying, I don't want to do this, is because all the sins that mankind has done from the beginning of time till Jesus comes back flash before his eyes. And these things are so horrible, so terrible, that even because he's God himself, nothing impure can go before him and he's seeing this torrent of impurity and hatred and vileness and it's it's disgusting i mean disgusting is not even the term it, it dimly it dimly says what he was actually feeling every sin committed by mankind Till he comes back before before he was uh, a human and after when he comes back are floating before his eyes. And to add insult to injury. Jesus, I don't care what you believe or not. Jesus truly loves you. And when he was in Gethsemane, he's seeing the the multitude the multitude of souls that are going to go to hell and he does not want that but they're going there through their own stubbornness okay they're going there through his own through their own stubbornness he's not happy about that it it hurts him to his heart And then he tells his father, not my will be done, but your will be done. Which we should be praying, those of us who consider ourselves Catholic, that's what we should be praying every day. Now, you know, he asks his disciples, hey, stay awake, keep me company. Two things come to mind on this particular thought. Number one, um, you can't put your trust in men. Men are going to let you down at every turn. Number two is when you pray to God, you're keeping company with him. When you, when you pray to the Blessed Mother, you're keeping company with her. You should be keeping company with God and his blessed mother. 
the intensity of his prayer, if you remember, it talks about that he was sweating drops of blood. That was how intense his prayer was. Now, obviously, because we are not God, we are just mere mortals. We are not capable outside of a miracle of sweating blood. But every time we should pray, we should pray with intensity and fervor. And the last the last thing I want to add for this particular scripture passage is that we should pray for patience and sufferings. And you know, basically patience means submitting to the will of God. Okay? That basically means that understanding that our sufferings are meant for our betterment spiritually and waiting, you know, not, not giving up in despair, not walking away, but keep praying and wait for the Lord to send us consolations. But I've already talked about that. So I'm going to go to the second scripture passage. This will be St. John chapter 18, verses 33 through 40, and chapter 19, verse 1. Pilate therefore went into the hall again and called Jesus and said to them, said to him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or have others told it, told it, told it thee of me. Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? uh, Thy own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee up to me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would certainly strive that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from hence. Pilate therefore said to him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world, that I should give testimony of the truth, and everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate said, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out to the Jews and saith to them, I find no cause in him, but you have a custom that I should release one of one unto you at the Pash. He's basically saying the Passover. Will you therefore that I release unto you the king of the Jews? And they cried all again, not this man, but Barabbas. Barabbas was a robber. And he was also an insurrectionist against the Roman authorities. And therefore, Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. Now, a quick comment. In a previous episode, I basically said 
that the motto of modern society is what is truth. And, you know, because I'm trying, I'm, I'm gonna, just going to say briefly what it is. They don't want to know the truth. They don't know the truth. And some are ignorant of the truth and don't even know it. So, anyway, on this scripture passage, basically, any, God, any man or woman who is not perfectly dead to self is soon tempted and overcome in small things. And if you, perf- if you pursue your sinful inclinations, if you have a conscience at all, you're going to have remorse for having gone after something that you knew to be wrong. And if you're a thinking person, you're going to realize that going after that particular sin might have might have satisfied you for the moment but after you do it you're as empty as you were before you did what you did so it's by resisting your sins that true peace of heart is found in other words if you pref- if you pursue um, devotion and piety instead of your sinful nature, it's going to give you peace. And I can attest to this. And the heart of a worldly man who is devoted to outward things has no peace. But the fervent and spiritual man gains true peace. Now, the observations from this gospel, um, this 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 bit of scripture. Think of this: God Almighty is being judged by his creatures. How many, And by the way, I'm just going to add this, you know, this thought, and you're going to have to bear it in mind when I go on through this. How many of us judge God Almighty, our creator? How many of us judge him? And... Something that we don't fully, someone who we don't fully understand, some, uh, someone whose ways are not our ways, and we don't even have the brain capacity to, to understand his ways, but we judge him anyway. And in this case, in this scripture passage, what I was going to say is, Scripture often, often foreshadows what happens in the future. 
And those of you with eyes and ears who can see and hear know exactly what I'm talking about. Because in this passage of Scripture, he's literally standing before humankind and he's being judged. Even though humankind doesn't have a leg to stand on in judging him. And humankind condemns him to be scourged, punished. You know, us, a pile of dust, (laughs) condemning our creator to be scourged. Now, if that isn't the very essence of injustice, I don't know what is. Okay. Sorry, I thought I lost my place. Now, let us remember, well, those of you who are actually um, informed on the subject, when Pilate had Jesus scourged, Jesus was suffering, received the scourging for the sin of sexual impurity. Let's remember that. And if, if you didn't know that, yeah, that, that is the traditional Catholic teaching. Okay? When Jesus got scourged, he was being punished for the sin of sexual impurity. So, for those of you in unnatural sexual relationships, for those of you who go to uh, uh, nudie bars, for those of you who are cheating on a spouse, for those of you who are living in um, out of wedlock, for those of you who are watching porn and, uh, you know, the sin that goes along with watching porn, for those of you who are practicing unnatural sexual acts, guess what? He's getting beaten in the past for the sins that you're committing right this instant. And he's also getting beaten for the sexual impurities of the future, too. Just something to bear in mind. And... The Gospels are very clear that when he receives his punishments, he doesn't cry out in pain. He doesn't, you know, he utters not a word of pain or complaint. Now, I do realize that we as fallen human beings, if we're in pain, we cry out. The point is here, though, is to try as best as we can to, as I said in the earlier part of this uh, episode, we're supposed to bear up as patiently as we can under our trials and tribulations and wait for God to give us comfort. 
And the next time you are tempted to complain, the next time you're tempted to, you know, and by the way, whenever you complain, and it doesn't have to be against God directly, you know, you don't have to say, oh God, why is this happening? You don't have to say that. If you say, oh geez, you know, the my wife has left me, you're indirectly complaining against God because he is the author of divine providence. And the next time you're tempted to do that, just remember the beating that Christ took for your sake so that you would have a shot at heaven. And a lot of us forget. A lot of us forget. And by the way, just as a quick disclaimer, I usually do this at the beginning. I forgot. I have been guilty of this in the past, or I'm guilty right now of it, but I'm working on it. But how many of us, um, forget that Jesus put himself through the passion? Everything that I'm about, you know, that I have talked about up until this point. And for the next three gospel readings, he put himself for that so that he loves us so much that he put himself through that so we would have a chance at salvation. And yet some of us through through pride and stubbornness still won't repent, still won't turn to Jesus. And for those people out there, and I mean this sincerely, I'm not trying to be edgy or nothing. May God have mercy on your soul. And one last thing, or two last things before I move on. Number one, it is described in early Christian literature, that after Jesus was beaten, and I mean a beating that a human being, some doctors have have read the case over and said, no human being could have taken the beating he got and survived, that his body was one big wound. That's why I absolutely despise the crucifixes where there's little trickles of blood coming out of his hands and feet. He was literally ripped to shreds. And I think that that corpus, as sanitized as that is, doesn't do what happened to him justice. And for that matter, um, you know, the, the, the Protestants, you know, they rightfully, you know, keep the sanitized corpse off of their crosses because even that sanitized corpse reminds them, hey, you did this to me. Shouldn't you amend your life and repent? And for the last last thing, this particular uh when you read this particular scripture, you should remember why mortification and penance of your body is necessary. So let's go to the third passage of Scripture. 
This is taken from St. Matthew chapter 27, verses 27 through 30. Then the soldiers of the governor, taking Jesus into the hall, gathered together unto him, and the whole band, and stripping him, they put a scarlet cloak about him, and plating a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head, and a reed in his right hand. And bowing before him, they mocked, saying, Hail the king of the Jews. Spitting upon him, they took the reed and struck his head. Now, in this particular passage, it said that they, you know, it sounds like they, they, that they only struck him once. No, they, they hit him more than once to, to pound that crown of thorns into his head. And by the way, for those of you who are unaware, these weren't, you know, the kind of thorns that are on roses. These aren't the kind of thorns that you find in the United States. These are extra long, extra painful thorns that only grew in Judea at the time of Christ. So, what do we take away from this passage? We should not be ashamed of serving Christ, period. We should not depend on ourselves for anything but hope in God. Now, this is more in the spiritual line of things, not in the the temporal or worldly line of things. Because obviously, especially if you have a family, you have to go to work, you have to bring home a paycheck, and you have to pay your mortgage, your car payments, and all that. But even in that, you should be thanking God and saying thank you for granting me the job, even if you hate it, so I can take care of my family. And another thing too is also recognizing the fact that God gave you the abilities and the graces to be able to get the job that you do have, especially if it's a well-paying one. Not even if it's a well-paying one. Even if you're working as a burger clerk, you should still thank him that you have a job and you're able to eat and pay your rent. Trust not in your, your, your own knowledge and don't trust in the intellect of any man living. And that includes, well, I'll just say, don't if it if it unless it's coming from a um true catholic source do not trust in the in, in the knowledge of any man living don't don't be proud if you're wealthy nor of your high placed friends but in God who gives you everything. And and by the way, fortunes change. You could lose your money. You could lose your high place friends. Then who are you going to turn to? Don't take pride in your stature. Meaning don't take pride if you're over six foot and you're muscular and you're all that. Don't take pride if you're beautiful. Because these are gifts from God. 
They're, you didn't do nothing. God gave it to you. Why are you taking pride over something you had nothing to do with? And like the riches and the powerful friends, these things are also passing. We all get old. You know, um, we lose our looks. Then what are you going to do? You're no longer a beautiful person. You're no longer a muscular person. Now, yes, I know that the, the, the over 60s who are mu- muscular specimens, um, I would argue that those muscular specimens over 60 are the exception, not the rule. Don't be proud of your abilities or your talents. Once again, God gave them to them, to you. You had nothing to do with them. Don't be proud uh, or think yourself better than anyone else because in God's eyes, except for the saints, we're all equally sinful and fallen. And remember that there's peace of in humble people. There's peace of heart in humble people. But in the proud, there is frequent envy and indignation. Oh, another thing too is the crowning of the thorns in traditional Catholic teachings. That was Jesus taking on the sin of pride because pride is often in the head. And so when he had to wear the the crown of thorns, he was being punished for our sin of pride, which we continually do. And, and bear in mind, too, oh, I'll get to that, actually. And I want you Protestants to think this over. You say that Mary was just a woman. Now, obviously, as a Catholic, I violently disagree with you. But just bear this in mind. If, if you can't wrap your heads around the fact that Mary was more than just a woman. Just wrap your heads around this little tibbet. Thus you say your mother witnessed what was done to Jesus, except it was you. Can you imagine how horrified, how, how outraged she would be that people would be doing this to you, especially if you were innocent. Just something to bear in mind this Lent. And the takeaway from this passage of Scripture is, Jesus is teaching us to bear shame with courage, which is 
shame with courage. Not shamelessness, but shame with courage. I think that's a valuable lesson in today's day and age. And one last thing before I head on to the fourth gospel or the fourth uh, gospel passage. How many of you tough guys, if somebody spit in your face, would turn around and just beat the living tar out of that person? But Jesus took it. We're supposed to use Jesus as our example, not ourselves. Okay, so the fourth gospel reading. Is Luke, uh, I'm sorry, St. Luke chapter 23, verses 17 through 32. How of necessity he was to release one unto them upon the feast day. In other words, he was going to release one condemned criminal to, to the Jewish nation. But the whole multitude together cried out, Away with this man, release unto us Barabbas. Remember, Barabbas is not only a uh, a robber, but he's also an insurrectionist. For who, for a certain sedition, sedation, sedition, made in the city, and for a murderer was cast into prison. I think he made the murder when he was a uh, when he was committing sedition. He was also a robber in the. In the bargain, Pilate spoke again to them, desiring to release Jesus, but they cried again, Crucify him, crucify him. And he said to them a third time, What evil has this man done? I find no cause of death in him. I will chastise him, therefore, and let him go. But there they were instant with loud voices, requiring that he might be crucified, and their voices prevailed. And Pilate gave sentence that it should be done as they required. And they released unto them a murderer, a robber, and a seditionist whom they had desired. But Jesus, he delivered up to their will. And as they led him away, they laid hold of one Simon of Cyrene, coming from the country, and they laid the cross on him to carry after Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who bewailed and lamented him. But Jesus turned to them and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not over me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the day shall come wherein they shall say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs they have not borne, and the paps they have not given suck. He's basically saying the breasts that have not nursed babies. Then they shall begin to say to the mountains, fall upon us and to the hills, cover us. For in the green of the woods they do these things. What shall be done in, this, in, in the dry? And there were two other malefactors led with him and put to death. Now, Once again, I'm going to reiterate a lot of the passages in the Bible foreshadow 
Not in the Old Testament, they just don't foreshadow what happens in the time of Christ, but they actually foreshadow what's going to happen after Christ. And in the New Testament, it actually foreshadows the future. But basically, in this passage, he's he's prophesying to the women of Jerusalem. Now, for those of you who may be a little ignorant of uh, um, Palestinian history in the time of Christ, in, I believe it was 66 AD, the, uh, the, the, the Jewish nation basically rose up in revolt against the Romans. And the emperor of Rome at that time told one of his generals, I believe it was Titus, Raise that, raise that uh, city to the ground and salt it so nothing can grow upon it. And um, it it was it was more horrible than anything they'd ever been accustomed to. And by the way, on their own side, there were the zealots, but. That's a whole history thing. For those of you who are interested in the history of uh, Palestine during the time of Christ, there's a Joseph. Uh, I'm sorry. There's a Jewish historian named Josephus who chronicles what happened at that time. And if I'm not mistaken, I think he even mentions the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, basically, like I said, the the New Testament is a is a foreshadowing of present era. So basically, when the Jewish people are saying crucify him. And release to us Barabbas. They are committing a crime against Christ in, in that they knew Christ didn't deserve to be punished. But because Barabbas was revolting against the Roman authorities, they wanted Barabbas. But they knew Jesus was innocent. And by the way, let it be noted in the book of John, when Pilate gives them their final he, he tries to give them their final warning and say, look, this guy's innocent. They said, let his blood be on us and the blood of our, our uh, I'm sorry, let his blood be on us and the, the heads of our children. Okay. Um, I know, especially in the Norvis Ordo sect and especially in certain Protestant sects, that little thing is glossed over or ignored. But yet the Norvis Ordo sect wants to claim that Jews who do not believe in Jesus are going to get to heaven. Anyway, so they called for his death. They called for his death. And every time we commit a sin, whether it's venial or mortal, and I, yes, I, for you, 
for you true Catholics out there, I know we probably commit a venial sin every day, but that's, we're, we're, we're to attempt not to, as hard as that is. But every time we sin, we add to Jesus's pain and suffering. Now, just a couple of observations. When Jesus got the cross, you know, the, the gospel, the gospel uh, reenactments or retelling of the story sound pretty grim, and they are. But think about this. Jesus, being God, knew that he was making the altar sacrifice so that sinful humans could get into heaven and be with him. I'm sure that made him pretty happy. Now, during the gospel, um, or, or during the passion narrative, he falls several times. Once again, this is um, foreshadowing. Because as if you're attempting to be pious and devout, you're going to fall into sin unless you're a saint. Okay, you're going to fall into mortal sin. By, he, by following his example and getting up and continuing to carry your cross, um, you're following his example. Now, of course, if you do commit a mortal sin, you're not just supposed to act like nothing happened. You're supposed to... Uh, be repentant and sorrowful and amend your ways. Now, Simon, the, the Syrian, was tasked to help carry his cross. And there was a reason for that. Because the Jewish authorities were worried that Jesus had been bru so brutally beaten that he might actually die before he got crucified. So they, they grabbed this guy. This guy was just walking along and they grabbed him and said, hey, you're going to help him carry the cross. So they made sure he was alive when he was finally crucified. Now, at first, Simon was reluctant, but afterward, he became a disciple of Jesus. So, you know, I can kind of, I can kind of get where Simon is coming from. You know, when you first start toward piety and devotion, you're reluctant. But as you do it, you love Jesus more. And there's also um, Veronica. I don't believe in any of the Gospels that they gave her name. I could be mistaken, but... In Catholic tradition, the lady who wipes Jesus' face off with the towel and he left an imprint of his face was named Veronica. And basically, she's a foreshadowing of those of us who do pious acts without, for Jesus without expecting to anything in return. Remember what Jesus said on the Sermon of the Mount. He said, um, those of you who do for the least of them, for my sake, are doing it 
to me. And I'm massacring the quote, but that's basically the gist of it. And uh, once again, the, the whole... The whole purpose of these gospel readings is to teach us to bear our crosses with patience and humility. It looks like I'm going to be running just a hair bit long. I'm going to do about five more minutes and then I'm going to do a second part to this. So the fifth gospel reading. Is from St. John chapter 19 verses 16 through 30. And they took Jesus and led him forth and bearing his own cross. He went forth to that place which is called Calvary. But in Hebrew Golgotha which means place of the skull, where they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side of Jesus in the midst. And Pilate also wrote a title and he put it upon the cross and writing, and the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title, therefore, many of the Jews did read because the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh unto the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Then the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Write not the king of the Jews, but he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. The soldiers, therefore, when they had crucified him, took his garments, and they made four parts to every soldier, a part and also his coat. Now the coat was, was without seam, woven from the top throughout. And they said to one another, Let us not cut, but let us cast lots for it. Therefore it, it shall be that the scripture might be fulfilled. They have parted my garments among them, and upon my vestiture they have cast lots. And the soldiers indeed did these things. Now there stood by the cross his mother, his mother's sister, Mary of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus therefore had seen his mother and the disciple standing whom he loved, that would be St. John, he, say, he saith to his mother, Woman, behold thy son. And he's talking about St. John there. And after that, he said to the disciple, Behold thy mother. Once again, he's talking about St. John. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own. After Je afterwards, Jesus, knowing all things were now accomplished, that scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. And now there was a vinegar set full of vinegar. There was a vessel set there full of vinegar. And they, putting a sponge full of vinegar about hyssop, put it in, put it to his mouth. Jesus, therefore, when it was taken, 
When, I'm sorry. Jesus, therefore, when he had taken the vinegar, said, it is consummated. And bowing his head, he gave up the ghost. All right. So in the second part, I'm going to give the reflections for that particular scriptural reading. Be right back. Okay, so these are the uh, these are the uh, these are the thoughts on this passage of scripture. Just as a reminder to my Protestant friends and my Vatican II sect friends that the reason why the pre-Vatican II Mass was considered a sacrifice was it was supposed to mirror this moment in time. Actually, because God is not bound by time, being the author of it, it was throughout the ages. It was supposed to, the, 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 the true Catholic Mass was to be a sacrifice. And basically, the pre-Vatican II Mass is basically a recreation of that sacrifice. Um, when he said that he thirsts, in traditional Catholic teachings, they, they say that <clears throat> he was thirsting for souls. Um, we also have to remember this scene too. We have to remember this scene too. Basically, the Jewish religious leaders are watching him being crucified and they're mocking him. Oh, he could he could save others, but he can't save himself. Come down and and, and save yourself if you're God. Those guys kind of remind me of today's atheists and secularists. Oh, you, you believe in a sky daddy. You're a moron. You know, he's just a Babylonian legend. His mother is, is a Babylonian goddess. That's more aimed at the Protestants in the audience, really. But they're basically... Mocking Christ again. And basically, they're as ignorant as those Jewish leaders were, religious leaders were, because they did not understand Christ, they did not want to understand Christ, and they made no attempt to understand Christ. It's the same thing. They're mocking what they don't understand, 
what they have no um, ability to understand. And they're, they're basically going by surface, uh, surface uh, images. You know, they don't, they don't truly have the spirit to understand. I mean, we're talking about the same religious leaders that he did commit miracles in front of, but because of the hardness of their heart, they wouldn't accept. Just like today's atheists and secularists, that their hardness of heart will not allow them to accept that there is a God and the God is Jesus Christ and his church is the pre-Vatican II Catholic Church. And by the way, on that last part, that also applies to the Vatican II sect members and the Protestants out there. Now, you know, I just want to talk about our Blessed Mother for a minute. Because a lot of Protestants say, oh, she was just a regular woman. She, you know, she really doesn't count. And, you know, look at the way Jesus talked to her. And they understand nothing. They understand nothing. And they don't, because of the hardness of their hearts, they're unwilling to understand anything. As I said in the previous observation, you Protestants out there who happen to be mothers, just imagine if that were your son. And you don't think that watching her beloved son get brutalized and hung on a cross, that it was no sacrifice for her, that she didn't feel pain. I, I, I urge you to rethink. I re-urge you, I, I, I urge you to rethink your position. And going off of that thought, Remember what it says. Remember what it says in St. John's Gospel. It says, Woman, behold thy son. And he said to the disciple, Behold thy mother. Now, I know there's going to be some hard-hearted Protestants that are going to say, well, well, he was just saying, take care of Jesus' mother while she was alive. Once again, that's a surface view. That's a surface view. And I want to add to that, to that thought. Let's take your assumption. That Catholicism was not the was not the religion that Jesus founded. Okay, I'm going to play a little thought experiment with you. You claim Bible alone. You claim Bible is your ultimate authority. Here's a passage in the Bible that literally says, 
to, you know, he tells John, he tells John the apostle, behold your mother. And he tells the mother Mary, behold your son, which, which the apostle John. So I'm going to go with your little, with your, with your little pet theory there that, um, Catholicism wasn't the one true religion. Even if that were true, why do you not treat Jesus's mother with more respect? Why do you say the shameful and blasphemous and, um, um, sacrilegious things about Jesus's mother? And I'm giving, I'm giving you your, your little theory there. I'm saying, okay, Catholicism is false. It, you know, it never was the true church. And Bible alone, Bible alone. It says in your Bible, behold your mother, behold your son. Why are you so disrespectful and hateful towards your mother, who also happened to be, who, who also happens to be the mother of your God that you claim to love? Well, that doesn't sound very loving to me, you know. Um, I'm, I'm sure for you Protestants out there that think that Mary was just another woman, would never think of going up to brother Jim Bob and insulting his mother and saying hateful things about her. I'm sure that you Protestants out there wouldn't say that. Um, anything like that about your own relatives, even if you knew that they did indeed deserve to be disrespectful or I'm sorry, disrespected because Basically, they're leading very sinful lives. But out of love for your family member, you probably don't disrespect them publicly the way you do your mother. And by the way, for you Protestants out there, oh, I'm telling my relatives all the time they're scumbags. Wonderful. I still, I, I, I still, if I were a betting man, would be willing to lay money. You don't run around inside whatever church you're in or sect and, and tell, uh, disrespect the mothers of your fellow parishioners. Not unless you're very, very socially retarded. I doubt it very seriously. Now, when Jesus dies, when Jesus dies, he says, Father, unto, my, unto thy hands I commend my spirit. All good Catholics, if they're getting ready to die, should say that. And as a matter of fact, because none of us is promised tomorrow, we should all make a habit of saying, 
in our prayers. Father, unto thy hands I commend my spirit, should something untoward happen, heaven forbid. Now, another thing that we should bear in mind in this passage of Scripture is that, you know, the soldiers are basically stealing his clothes because they can sell them. And the religious Jewish people are mocking him and making fun of him. And one of the criminals nailed next to him is mocking him. And what does he do? What does he say? Even the Protestants should be able to understand this passage of the gospel. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's the art of forgiveness. I'm sure we've all heard the... Um, the expression, to sin is human, to forgive is divine. Now, um, there's another passage, and it's not in the passage that I quoted um, for, the, for the fifth passage. For the fifth, uh, for the fifth uh, passage of scripture, it's actually in the book of Luke, or I'm sorry, Saint Luke. It's in the book of Saint Luke. Basically, when and there's Catholic tradition that it was the thief, the thief on the left, who was mocking Jesus, and the thief on the right was saying, and I'm paraphrasing here, he's like, "What are you doing?" We are condemned criminals. We deserve our fate. This man is innocent and he's being unjustly put to death. And then he asked Jesus, he said, can I, can I enter into your kingdom? And Jesus says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Now for you Feniites out there, that kind of punches a hole in your theory about needing water and and to be to be able to uh, needing bat- water baptism to get into heaven you know those of you who would put jesus in a box like i said my god is a god of uh, surprises sometimes he makes exceptions they're very limited and they're for a specific purpose but sometimes he does make Exceptions. And this also shows us it's actually when he forgives the uh, penitent thief Penitent just means that he wanted pardon from Jesus, that 
no matter how deep we are or mired in our sins, he's always there to forgive us if we will put forth the effort. Oh, there's a couple. There's a couple more things that this passage of gospel, or basically the whole passion narrative teaches us. And one of it is is self-sacrifice. And actually that was one of the um that was one of the things I wanted to get to in one of my previous gospel observations, but I never got around to it. Basically, Jesus was sacrificed so that every human being would have a shot at salvation. The purpose of Lent is is self-sacrifice while we're living. We're not actually giving up our physical lives, but we are giving up our impure uh, secular lives for Jesus' sake. And some people get this idea twisted. They think the only way that you can sacrifice for Christ is by being an actual martyr. In other words, actually dying for the faith. But there's several Catholic saints who point out that by mortification, by penances, by prayers... We are also making a sacrifice. It's a spiritual sacrifice. We are dying to the person we used to be with the intention, with Jesus and his mother's help, of becoming new persons in Christ. So, the whole purpose of Lent and for those of you in the Norvis Ordo sect, you know, they teach you about um, um, almsgiving. Almsgiving is part of sacrifice, but it's not the only sacrifice we're supposed to make. Um, basically, I'm sorry, I used a, a uh, an archaic term. Basically, you know, giving to charity for my Protestant and non-believing friends out there. Basically, charity giving. That's not the only sacrifice. We're supposed to make a threefold sacrifice. We're supposed to... And by the way, you got to use your natural reason. If you don't have uh, the resources to be giving charity, I mean money, no, you're not expected to do that. But if you do, you give money to charities. You sacrifice spiritually. You give up the things that you like. And you get more into the understanding of Christ's sacrifice. And then the third sacrifice we make, if you are called to do it, you're expected to die 
without ever denying Jesus Christ in his one true church. That, as a matter of fact, I would strongly suggest for, you know, true Catholics to pray that if it is necessary that you will give up your life for his sake, his mother's sake, and the sake of his one true church. And we should, um, there's one extra thing I want to make a comment on, and then I'll be ready to wrap up. Give me a sec. Here we go. There's one other thing. Okay. I'm going to make this a twofer. Self-sacrifice for God is part of our Lenten journey, but it also makes, um, also included in that is self-sacrifice for neighbor. Now, some of you may say, well, that's what the charity's for. Well, charity would be, in my mind, charity would be the, uh, the uh, physical aspect. But there's also a spiritual aspect of charity towards your neighbor. That means putting up and praying for your neighbor, putting up with stuff that, you know, he kind of annoys you, you know. You, You put up with it. And if he needs... You know, you pray for him. You pray for his spiritual welfare. So that's part of the the uh, spiritual sacrifice you make for your neighbors. It's not just for God. And by the way, this, this goes back to the Sermon of the Mount. Or no, I'm sorry, it wasn't the Sermon of the Mount. There's a passage in St. Matthew where the Pharisee, one of the Pharisees asked him, what are the two major laws of God? And Jesus answers them, Love God with all your might, all your heart, and all your soul. And love your neighbor as yourself. And he basically says, that's the basic, the two basic uh, pillars of my doctrine. So, that, that, that's what ties in to the... Uh, Self-sacrifice for God and neighbor. And then also forgiveness of injury. I touched on that. I did touch on that. I don't, I don't care. Well, I, 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 I'm sorry. I don't want to sound callous because that sounds callous. I know, I know to those of you who have been raped, physically abused, uh, mentally abused, that that honestly forgiving that person 
is probably the furthest thing in your mind. And I'm sure for a lot of you, if you could send that person straight to hell, you would. I can sympathize with that. I really can. My advice on forgiveness is just pray for forgiveness of your enemies. And that's part of the patience thing. You're not going to pray for forgiveness of your enemies for one night and then it's all going to be over with. It's going to take some time. It's going to take persistence. Give it to God. He, he will help you with that. I can attest to that personally. Now, um, so I just want to give a little closing statement. And this has actually gone a lot longer than I thought it would. But I'm feeling uh, particularly uh, inarticulate today. It's, it's taking me a lot longer to say things that other people could say in a couple sentences. I humbly beg and beseech you. If you do not practice Lent for whatever reason... Look into it. Look, study the origins. Study why people do Lent. And I'm not talking about the Lutherans and the Anglicans and the other fake Catholics out there. I'm talking about the true tradition, the true Catholic Church. Those of you who do practice Lent, I humbly beg and beseech you. Not only read those passages of Scripture during Lent, but also look into the many, many volumes that were written by true pre-Vatican II Catholics. I'm talking about priests and saints, no less, on the Passion of Christ. Try to pray Pray for, for understanding and empathy for what he went through. Because if you do this during Lent, when, when Easter comes, hopefully God will give you the grace of being truly grateful for what he has done for you. And give you true contrition and true charity toward him and your neighbor. I humbly urge that. And for those of you out of hardness of heart that I'm wasting my breath on, Actually, I'm not going to say that. That's presumption. I'm, that's presumption. I apologize. That's presumption. But those of you who have hardness of heart, all I can say is, is that how can you mock and ridicule something that you don't understand. And 
to top the matters off, how can you mock and ridicule something that not only do you not understand, but you do not have any intention of understanding? The whole purpose of Lent is is to bring us closer to Jesus Christ and to grow in piety and devotion. That's the long and the short of it. And I, for those of you who do have hardened hearts, I'm praying for you. And as a matter of fact, not just, you know, I'm praying for everyone. You don't necessarily need to have a hardened heart. You could be ignorant. Doesn't matter. You could be at a spiritual crossroads. Doesn't matter. I'm praying. And I'm also praying that I am being the instrument of the Holy Ghost that I should be. Because it's necessary. So... Those of you who want to pray for me, I'll, I'll, I'll take your prayers. And I want to thank you. This went a lot longer than I anticipated. I want to thank you for listening. And thank you for giving me your time. I'm sorry it took me so long to say something so basic. But I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't think it was important for everyone involved. I want to say, God loves you. And in my own perfect way, I love you. And I pray that you will repent, sincerely repent and turn from your wicked ways. And come to the only peace and joy that you will ever know. Thank you for listening. God bless you. Have a good day. Bye-bye.